Today on episode number 188 of the Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, I welcome to the show Anastasia Salter to talk about designing inclusive games for the higher ed classroom. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Welcome to this episode of Teaching in Higher Ed. I'm Bonnie Stahoviak, and this is the space where we explore the art and science of being more effective at facilitating learning. We also share ways to improve our personal productivity so we can have more peace in our lives and be even more present for our students. Today's guest was recommended to me by John Stewart. Anastasia Salter is an assistant professor of digital media at the University of Central Florida. She is the author of Toxic Geek Masculinity in Media, Sexism, Trolling, and Identity Politics, Jane Jensen, Gabriel Knight, Adventure Games, Hidden Objects, and Flash, Building the Interactive Web. She's also the author of What Is Your Quest? From Adventure Games to Interactive Books. And what a source of inspiration she is for all of us. Thanks, John, for recommending her. And let me welcome Anastasia Salter into the show. Anna, welcome to Teaching in Higher Ed. Thanks for having me. I am so grateful to John Stewart for recommending to have you on the show. And as I mentioned to you already, I've really enjoyed your work in Prof Hacker. That, that I'm self-professed geek when it comes to these things. So I, <laughs> that's pretty much the first thing I ever read out of the Chronicle are those columns. So thank you for your work in that. But after being given a nudge to learn more about your work, I want to read every book you've ever written and I want to read everything on your blog. So I'm really just thrilled to be talking with you today. Oh, thank you. That's that's very sweet. I love my work at Prof Hacker because it lets me geek out on all of the things I'm playing around with too. That's probably where most people that I've met in academia come from is that whole community of fellow tech geeks trying to figure out what we're going to do with all the tools we have and the state of education. <laughs> I really enjoy the column and especially the ones I've had a chance to read of yours. Let's start with, you know, just a softball question. Could you tell us <laughs> about your love and hate of games? <laughs> I grew up on video games, and I particularly grew up on narrative computer games at a time when really the, the designers were figuring out what these games were. And there were actually more women visible in game design than people like Jane Jensen, who I just got to geek out and write a book about an interview, and Roberta Williams. And at that time, I got, I think, so engrossed in these games because there was this emphasis on slower narratives. There wasn't much graphical processing power. They couldn't really render very hot, over-the-top women the way that they decide to do now, right? There was a different feeling to games. And I've watched games grow where we have kind of this AAA mainstream industry of hyper-masculine, hyper-violent games that I don't really have any patience for anymore. And then all the weird indie games from people who grew up on the games like I did and want to see games become something more and that's the space that I'm really interested in. All of the things that you can do with games, because really it's just like talking about books or movies or comics, right? It's just a form and what comes out of it is what someone imagines. 
I listened to this great episode of a podcast I enjoy listening to called Reply All. And I'll go find mm. it in the show notes. I, I, mean, I mean, I'll find it and then I'll place it in the show notes. <laughs> I laugh though, because they talked about someone such as yourself who just had such a fond memory of a game that they played. And they actually were able to, because it wasn't produced anymore, they were able to track down the person who wrote it. And it was really just this obscure game. And it was so fun to hear them get inside someone else's mind as they create it, because it was really had all these really random things. And one of the things that really struck me that I remember about the episode was just really the relationships that this woman was able to form through the game. The game, as I recall, didn't necessarily have these wonderful idealistic plot lines that I would aspire for in such a thing, but just that the way that she was able to form really intimate relationships with people all over the world was just a really striking thing to think about. And I can only imagine that today those things are even amplified even more. And in some ways, actually, I'm still nostalgic for early days of fandom and particularly games fandom, because we had communities that were a little smaller and there was a lot less emphasis in early web on occupying your real identity. So I could be in discussions about games with people as a teenager online under my pseudonym and meet people who are in universities and who are designing games. And there's an opportunity for intimacy in those connections that it felt smaller, even if it was really just that the number of people who were actively online in a particular space was just a little smaller. And now we have kind of communities of discourse that are a lot more problematic. They're a lot more troubled. Uh, games fandom, games conventions have continual problems with harassment and there's a toxicity that goes with these online spaces that makes it a lot more difficult to operate within games fandom now. So I, I similarly am nostalgic for many of those older games and the relationships I formed around those classic adventure games and LucasArts fandom. What are some of the games that you do enjoy playing now? And, and maybe they still have some of these downsides. I mean, just like I know you're on Twitter and we know certainly the trolling and sexism inherent there, but but are there games you oh, still yes. play? And, and have they done something different to try to foster communities that are safer and more embracing of different mm -hmm. populations? I admit, I don't play many multiplayer games anymore. Mm -hmm. I play a lot of single player games that have communities around them or, or very carefully orchestrated communal interactions. And one of my favorite examples of that is actually the current Animal Crossing game. Mm. <laughs> so this is really silly and decidedly not a hardcore game. It's the type of game that you can play very casually. And actually, uh, Shira Chest just wrote a great book about this type of casual game, Ready Player Two, that talks about these games that fit into the, the busier lives, particularly of women at a certain age and people with a lot of combined family and professional responsibilities that are games that provide little bits of escapism and some controlled social element. And I've been playing that a lot more than I expected, checking in on my garden and giving giving fish to cute little animals who smoke the fish and then give you furniture. Right? It's a very transactional, casual game, but it has just enough multiplayer and sense of community to to be a space that people converse about and share snap chats of it and send pictures on Twitter and talk about 
the odd things the characters in the campsite said today. My kids are now three and five, so too young to have gotten into the Minecraft world. But uh, yes. one of the things that I'm at least glad to have heard about from friends who are teachers are that at least the games like that, my understanding is they offer us more flexibility such that if we don't want to have our kids or our students, if we're teaching K through 12, if we don't want to have them interacting with the world at large, that there is some control to bring that universe down to a much smaller community. I, I don't know if I'm right about that or if I'm understanding it correctly and just that it seems like the demand is more to offer that kind of flexibility to people. Yes. And it, I think it's essential to the enjoyment of a lot of people who are either not necessarily ready for everything that's going to happen in multiplayer game discourse, like in the example of uh, younger audiences, but also people who just don't have the mental energy left for that at the end of the day. And and then I think that's why, why single player game design, which really is uh, having a bit of a comeback in narrative games, everything from a, a dream daddy, a dad dating simulator, which is what I'm writing about right now. That's a visual novel, uh, queer dating game to uh, things like the Professor Layden games, which are fantastic, quirky little mystery games with logic puzzles and, and such strewn about essentially mystery stories. Those sorts of single player games are, are also a, a stronger entry point <laughs> for a lot of us where we just acknowledge that sometimes it's nice to have a, a walled <laughs> solo experience to a story. It has been so fun to just get lost in a good way all throughout your website. And of course, notice that you have created many games yourself. <laughs> I wonder if there's one or two games that you've created where you really think when all said and done, that's the kind of impact I would like to see have in making a game. I just love to hear some of the stories behind those games. Uh, probably my my favorite project I've worked on is uh, Eliza and Andromeda, and that's not actually on the website because we've we did it, this as an installation piece, and it was a collaboration with Dina Larson, who is an electronic literature author whose work I grew up on. So it was really cool to work with her and just have this kind of cross-generational conversation about how women's voices tend to be represented within games and gaming systems. And in that work, kind of my main piece of it was breaking the Eliza bot, which is that classic code that was generated as a therapy bot. You may have interacted with Eliza online. And she's like the perfect submissive robot who's just there to talk to you about your feelings. And we basically made a subversive version of her and imagined her telling us a story and what type of stories would Eliza tell if if she were conscious. That project well, it's, it's an installation piece, so it reaches a limited audience, but I also got to see people interact with it and how they kind of responded to this very hostile, very feminist, uh, pissed off author voice. And that was really cool. And it's the sort of thing I want to keep building. I'm really intrigued by this. We're actually launching a the first ever and probably will be a very infrequent book club on teaching in higher ed and by the time this recording has will go out, it will have already occurred, but we're re we decided to read Emotional Intelligence 2.0. And I'll put a link to the show notes in case anybody wants to read the same thing we did. And I'm both enjoying it as a read, 
but also am I'm feeling a little bit like it's too artificial. Like if I was to be a perfectly emotionally intelligent person, I wouldn't really be in touch with, gosh, I actually get angry sometimes. And that, you know what I mean? It didn't, it just, it's both, I think it could be helpful. And then I also think it could be hurtful in terms of not being able to really be who we fully are. And sometimes trying to take on these airs, and especially as women, you know, we're, we grew up so much being socialized of we're supposed to be good and not cause trouble. And that, that awful poem about sugar and spice and everything nice. So yes. I'm really intrigued by this idea of taking this perfect in the idealized feminine therapy bot and then just really showing what's really going on in that inner inner dialogue. It sounds very intriguing. Thank you. And I, I'm absolutely with you. I think that there's such a space for anger right now that we need to be able to be angry about what's happening in higher education, about our concerns for our students, about our own work, that anger it's, it's not an emotion we can just let go. And we're so often told it's one we're not supposed to have or demonstrate. But it could be exhausting. And if we're going to have conversations that need to happen in the healing of racial identity, sexual identity, then then there's there's going to be anger there. And to be able to express our anger and also to really listen deeply to other people's anger without feeling like it's somehow about us. So it's just such a narcissistic way we can sometimes enter into these really hard conversations of like, wow, this is making me uncomfortable. The ways in which you've been subjugated throughout your entire life for this 15 minutes. Oh, it's uncomfortable. Could we be a little you know, more friendly when we talk about our, our lives. It's, it's uh, just something that I really think is healthy. I, I'm, I'm getting really intrigued by that. Well, one of the things that every time I get an honor to talk to someone like you, I walk away thinking, wow, I'd love to build a game. And, and my mom actually has expressed her desire to build a game. And Keegan actually had mentioned when I commented about her wanting to do that. Said, oh, tell her to get in touch with me. I'm happy to coach her. I mean, so there's just so much inspiration there, but it's hard to even know how one would get started. So do you have a way that you sort of start out with like thinking about how do you know, how does somebody get started? How do, how do you create games when you've never written one before? How, what's a good way to get our foot in the door? So the first thing to decide is kind of why are you making the game? How do you want people to encounter this idea that you have, whatever this concept is that's sitting in your head? And normally the first decision is either to make a physical game or a single person digital game of some kind. And a lot of times with the classroom and educators or people making their very first game, I will strongly recommend make a board game or a card game. Don't be limited by technology as your entry point because board games and card games are inherently social. So you know you're going to get together a group of people around it. It's a something that you don't invest so much time into building that you get all caught up and like, oh, I've made this brilliant game and you don't want to change it. All right, a board game or a card game is flexible. You can go through lots of prototypes and that's the best way to learn how to design is you build something, you put a rule system on it and you get some people to play it and it doesn't work. <laughs> and you take notes on why it doesn't work and you go build it again and you get other people to play it and you keep going until it works or until your idea has changed and your sense of how you want it to work has, has evolved. So that's the easiest. Board and card games are the perfect starting point. 
But sometimes if you're really trying to build something that's kind of narrative driven, like what I was just talking about with Eliza and Andromeda, it's tough to build that sort of personal experience. It's almost a conversation between you and someone you imagine playing this game as a physical game. And that's where you get into tools like Twine, which is always where I send people first. Because Twine is text-based. You really don't have to learn any coding. And you can basically add any type of decision you can imagine as a text choice in the game. So you don't have to visualize things. You don't have to be a, a strong artist. It's all about what you can communicate with your words. If I wanted to do this, should I be thinking about my ideals and my values and what I want to bring into this world and try to build a game? Or should I just try to build a fun game, get a little bit of experience building games, and then bring more of my values and what I want to bring into the world into the experience? In my experience, we stick with something and we learn more when we're passionate about what we're building. So I say start out trying to build the, th the thing that brought you to games in the first place. And even if you don't build it perfectly, your passion will come through and the values that you want to embed in this world will come through. And so I always say kind of start from the passion project because uh, often when people, when people try to learn programming, right, one of the reasons why people tend to fail at learning programming is not because they can't learn programming. Of course they can learn programming. But if they're just trying to learn programming, to learn programming, and they're following Code Academy tutorials or kind of however they decide to approach it, they're not trying to build something they're passionate about. They know that they're supposed to learn programming, but they don't really have a reason to care about learning the programming. Whereas if you decide you want to make a game in Twine to express something powerful to you or something that you've learned about or, or recreate an experience, you're going to have a reason to go learn the more complex code or style sheet aspects in order to pull that off. You're going to have a motivation that's outside of just learning to code or learning to make games. It's going to drive you to learn and create more complex things. I'm teaching a business ethics class in the spring, and this will be my third time teaching the class. And I have thought about having them build a game. I actually build the whole course as more of a choose your own adventure. So they would get it as an option that they could do other things in place of that project. But I thought I'd open that possibility up. Admittedly, though, I feel a little bit like I'm going to be a terrible coach for that because something like ethics is so complex. And I think if they make it way too obvious that like, this is the right choice, you know, and that that's really not the most interesting exploration of applied ethics. So I'm, I'm kind of at a loss. But yet I also just feel that little bit of excitement, though, of yeah, you might not know what's going to happen, you might not be the perfect coach, but there's a lot of people out there that could help lots of communities. And I don't know, I don't know if you have any thoughts about building games for really complex things that don't have exact paths. Because I, I mean, when you're building a game, I think a little bit about Twine. It is very much like a choose your own adventure. And there are paths that you have to go down. How do you build paths for really complex things? Well, one thing you can do is take a look at the complex and powerful games that already exist within Twine. And of course, my go-to for this is anything by Porpentine, because uh, her work is powerful and nuanced. And it's even sometimes when the choices lead you to the same place, you find yourself thinking a lot about what happened on the way. With those we love left alive is a perfect game for that sort of experience. But then kind of uh, something that comes out of the 
the games and learning community that's really helpful to think when you start getting caught up in making the perfect game or simulation <laughs> is that any game it can be a valuable learning experience with debriefing. So sometimes the conversation you have after playing an imperfect game is much more valuable because that game led you into the conversation. And it doesn't matter if that game was flawed or if that game's morality was too simplistic. If it causes an emotional reaction or it causes people to say, no, I don't want to make either of those choices. I want to do something else. Then that conversation that you have, particularly in the classroom after introducing that type of game, that's where the learning happens. That's really helpful. Some years ago, gosh, it must have been six or so years ago, my students made a board game called Bulls and Bears. And it was to teach designed to teach around 14 to 17 year olds, maybe a little younger than 17, but about the stock market. But it actually works really well with we've played it with someone in her 70s. So I know it works across generations. But it was it, it was a really good game. And it was we, we did it through one of those websites where you can upload Photoshop or other graphic files to it so that all the board pieces, the cards and things were actually printed with they came up with logos. I mean, it was a really, really great game. But it definitely had flaws because I think it conflated the idea of buying stock in a company versus things that happen in industries that affect all companies that compete in that industry. And the way that they designed it, the cards and the choices, just the structure of it, it's always, every time I've played it, I've always thought, gosh, they learn so much by playing this game and they really do better on the test and they and it, and it stays with them for longer. So I really love the game, but man, this just bugs me that this one thing. So I have really found, until you said this, I didn't really realize it, but I've really found, well, of course, then debriefing. What about the game? Wasn't really representative of how the real stock market works or if you were really putting your money in there, how could we change it? And that that actually is a helpful way that I sort of thought of as just masking the faults of the game. But like now I'm realizing maybe is even more ideal because of what that debriefing experience can bring them. Absolutely. And even better, if this causes your students to bring that awareness to the other games and the other kind of situations where they're engaging with a simulation or a claim about something real and to notice where things are being conflated and where there are flaws, then that's an, an incredible learning outcome of its own. Actually, a community that's really good at this is professors and teachers of history. There's a great blog, Playing the Past, and there's a lot of games that represent history in ways that are really problematic. Civilization being one of the most infamous uh, is, uh, in that you can end up facing off against Gandhi and he has nuclear weapons. There's just lots of things going on in civilization that are about civilization as a game that, while they're useful for the teaching of history, the conversations about all the problems within it and all the assumptions in the code are much more valuable if handled correctly than than just playing the game unsupervised would be. I really like just thinking about that a little bit. And you're, you're reminding me of my mom recently took my son to the library. You've had the gal who normally watches our kids. She was supposed to come all week and poor thing has been sick the whole week. So we've been doing parental juggling and all of that. So she came up to help us out and came back from the library. And of course, we had said to our son, you know, oh, remember the librarians there, they can help you and everything. And he came back with like, a couple of books about weapons, and we're not really into weapons in our house. And so it's just like, I thought, like, do I try to censor this book from him? 
Or could we talk about why I don't always really celebrate books about weapons? In fact, there was another one that was about para para rescuers, I think was the name of this position. It was published in 2013. And it says right in the pages, only men can do this job in the military. And so I talked to my son, I was like, why do you think that only men could do this job? Do you think there are women who can run really fast and do lots of push-ups and swim. Oh, yes, mommy. I think there are women who could do that. So why do you think they only let men do this job? So it's kind of one of those things of exposing our students, exposing the people we're trying to influence to things, and then having them work out some of these complexities and some of the ways in which their own values may or may not be reflected is probably better than, you know, censorship and never letting our son talk to a librarian again. (laughs) I'm working this out in my mind. (laughs) Absolutely. And to me, that's one of the most critical things I try to manage teaching digital media and and pop culture courses is to say, look, here's here's the stories you're embedded in. Here's the games you're playing. Let's interrogate the value system. And that's, of course, a first step for someone who's going to design systems to think about and interrogate what they're going to do themselves and what they're constructing. But it also... I think builds some resistance and awareness of the the messages that are constantly enveloping us in culture. You recently released your latest book, Toxic Geek Masculinity in Media, Sexism, Trolling and Identity (laughs) Policing, which you co-wrote with Bridget and I, you're going to need to say her last name because I don't want to mispronounce it. (laughs) What is Bridget's last name? Bridget Blodgett. Yes. And so uh, here's the lamest question of my entire interview. What got you interested in writing a book about toxic masculinity? (laughs) Where do we begin? (laughs) So that's the hardest book I've ever worked on. And actually, it was for uh, when Bridget and I were working together at the University of Baltimore, which is a program with a very small degree in game design, uh, where almost all of the students are cisgendered men. and I, I don't believe their demographics have shifted that much you know, since I was teaching. It was very, very dominated by a desire to make uh, zombie games and other kind of violent games that are were very popular in the AAA industry. So these we were kind of embedded in that as teachers. And of course, there were students who wanted to do other things, but the, the dominant discourse of the games industry was ever present in the classroom and ever present in our research lives. Then, of course, matters in the games industry and games culture uh, got more visibly worse and drew in academics uh, with, of course, events like Gamergate, which I, I talk about in the book. I don't want to drag us down that rabbit hole, but I will simply say was a very uh, violent backlash against some particular women in the games industry driven by a lot of hatred that led to a lot of public backlash and a lot of consideration for those of us who work as scholars in this space to think about, okay, what is it we're working on? What is it we're teaching? And kind of what's happening with these things that we do love that's contributing to this toxic moment. So for us, the book, which was in progress before things got really bad, was it took a lot of years to work on because we were kind of trying to construct a master narrative understanding. <laughs> well, uh, resisting 
master narrative simultaneously of what's happening with geek masculinity and kind of what's what is it about this moment where geek culture is huge where everybody's got a porg and uh, star wars movies are back and comic book releases are are some of the biggest releases of the year that is also causing this incredible backlash that's hurting people in the spaces and media production areas that we love. So that that project became one of trying to connect some of the stories and moments happening in comics and comics fandom, like the backlash against fake geek girls and people who are told they don't belong in comics conventions, looking at uh, some very troubling things that happened with the Hugo Awards, where people were essentially saying that they were reclaiming the Hugo Awards for traditional sci-fi and stuffing the ballot boxes with work that uh, included sometimes uh, very racist, very misogynist depictions uh, and uh, particularly trying to make it so that many Hugo Awards were awarded to nobody because the people voting on the final versions from the things submitted by fans were so horrified by what had been nominated in some categories. And then connecting that to Gamergate and what's happening in the AAA games industry and putting that all together into this, this moment where we know that geek culture has gone mainstream, but geek culture uh, and particularly some members within the geek community are, are not thrilled uh, with what that means for pushes towards greater inclusivity and just the visibility of people who are not white men within spaces that they saw as theirs. What are some examples of the ways that seemingly innocuous shows have contributed to this problem? And you, I know you've, you've got some great examples from the book. Well, uh, I particularly w- would point to the number of shows that, that tell us to exalt a particular type of white masculinity. And uh, you, you and I were talking briefly earlier about our mutual love of Sherlock. So I, I feel I have to, to put that particular BBC show out to dry for a moment. So, of course, Sherlock is a show that, that tells us constantly that Sherlock is a genius. And it has a very, very strongly dedicated fandom of people who are who love this character, right? And of course they do. He's a, an amazing actor. He's portrayed constantly in ways that remind us of his, his intelligence and snark. Um, and he has a, a great relationship with his unofficial love interest, Watson, that all builds into a, a show that's very watchable. And he also has difficulty forming relationships <laughs> with other mm-hmm. people. And so that has just been a theme without that it's the younger days of my life. Fortunately, I grew out of part of that. But yes, there's that that compelling thing of, oh, wow, there's this wounded, incredibly intelligent, strong, yet weak man <laughs> all at the same yeah. time. And we are invited to join him in mocking the women who get attracted to him. Of course, we are invited to join him in rejecting those characters and women and treating women as as very secondary. When we do have a woman character actually creating a a dominant role in the show, uh, Watson's wife, of course, who has her own narrative, but is continually Watson's wife. That character was treated horribly by the show's narrative and systematically fridged, a term we 
drawn from comics fandom to discuss to describe the moment when an interesting woman is killed to further the plot line or emotional development of a man, <laughs> which is a very, very, very common thing in comics, film, and television. But what happens with Sherlock is even more insidious than just those portrayals, because a lot of it has to do with how that show treats the women who like that show, and particularly treats the women who who dare to kind of write fan fiction about it or to ship the characters uh, and who have that kind what, of What does that mean to ship the characters? So shipping is uh, just imagining a relationship between okay. two characters on the show, right? So shippers are ones that are waiting for, like in classic era, we're waiting for Mulder and Scully to kiss. Okay, okay. <laughs> That's a helpful uh, analogy, yes. Yeah, so, so most of the shippers on Sherlock were waiting for Sherlock and Watson to kiss. So shippers are kind of on that end. Uh, Stephen Moffat, as a showrunner, really hates shippers. He, he attacks them over in Doctor Who fandom as well. But in Sherlock, they do an entire episode in the text to make fun of fans and particularly fangirls. Where after Sherlock uh, apparently was dead and they left us on social media, leaving people to come up with their own wild narratives for how Sherlock survived the fall, we have an episode that is entirely has unnecessary moments devoted to having a Sherlock fan club meeting in the narrative of the show where every all the men are giving their elaborate theories and when the woman present offers a narrative that also involves a love story uh, she becomes the most subject to mockery the whole show kind of reinforces this idea that these characters fates are not for for you to decide or speculate on that the women watching are held up to greater derision and and this reinforces something we commonly see within the media industry which is a focus on fanboys as the valued audience and people like Stephen Moffat talking about making a show for themselves and people like them oh and yet I love that you said that you like the show I just love that there can be room for both of those things. We can think critically and we can be critical of the ways in which they're reinforcing toxic masculinity. And yet I don't have to shut off the show every time it comes on because it's actually, I found it to be a really good show. But um, you've shown me some really undercurrents of things I hadn't really thought about. And I just really appreciate that. And I no doubt in your book, we we'll find even more of that. So I'm just going to encourage people to check it out. And this is actually the time in the show where we each get to give some recommendations. And I am going to recommend going over to visit your website and having a look around, learning more about your book, Toxic Geek Masculinity in Media, Sexism, Trolling and Identity Politics, which is right there on the homepage, but also then click over to the games tab. And of course, read Anastasia's blog as well. So that's my recommendation for today is to visit your website, Go have a look at many of the resources up there. You've got a whole link to talks and workshops that you've given and just a whole tremendous amount of resources. And I can't stop this part of the recommendation without also saying go over to read your work on Prof Hacker as well. And this is the point where I get to pass it over to you to make some recommendations. So since we talked earlier about board games, one of the best ways to get started with game design and also to see games differently is to play really interesting board games. So I want to recommend a few games that are cooperative games with 
interesting dynamics that are great for playing with uh, family or even bringing into a classroom as a point of both discussion of how games can work and as an opportunity to have really interesting cooperative discussions and debates. So my top game right now is Pandemic Legacy. Uh, Season two is out. It's a standalone game. And this is actually based on classic pandemic, which is exactly what it sounds like. You work as a team struggling against global pandemics and trying to make the right choices to shut down this epidemic and travel around and help as many people as you can while researching and curing diseases. Um, What's really interesting about the legacy games is there are these very long narrative games where the choices you make in one play session affect your next play session. So even though it's a board game, there's this sense of history and developing uh, your own story as you're going through this conflict. And then another great cooperative game that might particularly interest uh, the historically minded, it's uh, called Time Stories. It is a time travel game. And it's beautifully crafted, gorgeous cards and these kind of elaborate mysteries that you're traveling back in time to fix something that went wrong. And it takes you through a whole bunch of different settings and just really beautifully designed game, the type of game that when you look at it, you can kind of imagine how this type of game design can lend itself to all sorts of stories and all sorts of ideas that you might have yourself. This is a whole new world to me is are these, I mean, you said board games. So these are games Mm -hmm. that I would purchase and would have a board in them. <laughs> and so uh, images on the boards, pieces of boards, cards. I mean, how, how does it work? Are they, are they similar to other board games I would have played in terms of the actual physical playing of the game? So if I'm imagining other games you've played might be Clue, Monopoly, the types of board games that kind of people are familiar with from Family Game Night. Imagine uh, those, but if really interesting illustrators were involved and with a whole lot more cards and moving pieces. So they're, they're complex physical objects, but they really are works of art. And in that sense, uh, those of us who collect board games will often get drawn into buying one just because it's beautiful. (laughs) So -hmm. this is really a place where game design has just been pushing forward lately. And there's so many interesting indie board games out there. I highly recommend the website Board Game Geek. If you're interested in learning more about board games and when you find one of these that you like, you can go search something like Time Stories, find games like it that are recommended by other people. And it's just, you can take some great journeys that way. Well, Anastasia, it has been such an honor to get to talk with you today. It's funny in terms of having read so much of your work, but not gotten to hear your voice yet. And I really enjoyed our conversation and just so pleased that you're passing on your expertise to the teaching in higher ed community. Thank you. It was great talking with you. Anastasia Salter, thank you so much for being a guest on today's Teaching in Higher Ed podcast, episode number 188. And thanks to all of you for listening. It is incredible to think in just 12 episodes, we will be to episode 200. And a lot of that is because of all of you coming and listening to the podcast and sharing what you're taking away and recommending guests and topics. If you have any recommendations that you want to make, You can always get in touch with me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is B-O-N-N-I 208. Or you're welcome to go to teachinginhighered.com slash feedback. Thanks so much for listening and I'll see you next time.